Welcome to The Lawyerist Podcast, a series of conversations about law practice. Each week, we talk with legal entrepreneurs and innovators about building a successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are your hosts. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 189 of the Lawyerist Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, we're talking with Natana Sharma about what blockchain is and what lawyers ought to know about it. Today's podcast is brought to you by LawPay, Ruby Receptionist, New Law Business Model, and Clio. We appreciate their support, and we'll tell you more about them later in the show. So the only episode of this podcast that I ever hosted on my own was on this exact (laughs) same topic. You'll never forget it. Yeah. Three and a half years ago in episode 14, where our guest was Marco Santori talking about what blockchain is and what lawyers ought to know about it. And at the time, it definitely felt like the blockchain and Bitcoin and crypto overtaking the world three and a half years ago felt like it was about three to five years away. And now it's been three and a half years and it still feels like it's going to disrupt everything, but probably not for three or five years. And therefore, I wonder if the promise of blockchain is just perpetually five years in the future. So I think people will find this episode interesting because that is not Natana's take on it. She described describes it much more as like the TCP IP protocol. It is something that will underpin the future of some things that will be really important that nobody really has to think about. But it's not like disruptive in the sense of robot lawyers, which is another thing that we kind of obsessed about for a while and we haven't done a show about in a long time. I am looking forward to this conversation in part (laughs) to see whether the two of you were able to draw out any different conclusions than I was three and a half years ago in a different conversation. Here's what I think our, our listeners will really appreciate about this. Natana explains it in a really, really accessible way, what blockchain is and whether or not you need to care about it and what its significance is. And so I think you will come away from this episode with a pretty good understanding of what you need to know without all the hype that has previously sometimes been attached to blockchain. God, I love when we have episodes about robots and Bitcoin. (laughs) We'll try and do more of that, I guess. Also on Lawyer's Lens this week, I'll be talking with Jennifer Longton about how she handles payment plans, including with her low income clients. This was recently a pretty hot topic in the Lawyerist Insider Facebook group with attitudes from, I take all of my checks from my clients, you know, a year in advance. And if they don't pay, I report them to the district attorney for fraud to, I would never accept payment plans, cash up front or nothing. And then more forgiving ones. And I think you'll really appreciate Jennifer Longton's approach. She manages to do it in a way that is friendly, even to low income clients and seems to be doing it in a very client friendly, client centered way. So check that out. You can find it on the front page of lawyerist.com and on our YouTube channel. Please take a minute to help us out by subscribing on YouTube. It'll really help. Now we've got a brief sponsored conversation with George Saharis from Clio. And then we'll jump into my conversation with Natana Sharma. Hi there, my name is George Saharis, and I am the Chief Operating Officer at Clio. Hey, George, it's great to have you here. So you are starting to think about the Clio Cloud Conference, obviously, which is coming up in October. And one of my favorite things about that is the emphasis that you place on looking at the way your customers use your product. And so maybe you could talk a little bit to us about how Clio thinks about that customer journey, the customer experience, and how businesses use it in general. Yeah, thanks, Sam. Great to be here. 
a big area of passion of mine is this concept of customer experience. So at Clio, obviously, we think about that through the lens of how our customers, who are law firms and practicing legal professionals, use our products, but also of late have pivoted to understanding how our customers' customers, the clients of these law firms, work through our app, but also experience the firms that they're working with from a holistic perspective. It's an important aspect of how many businesses think about what they do because it really helps drive a number of secondary effects, both how satisfied people are with the service, but also how likely they are to recommend and drive repeat business. And I think it's just as applicable to a law firm as it is to most other general types of businesses out there, including ours. Yeah. And I suppose for you, you are actually designing lawyers' customer experience, or at least a portion of it, because your customers are likely to interact with Clio at some point during the representation as well. Exactly. There is a technology layer that now is just as important and part of the experience for clients as it is for the members of the firms that we've traditionally worked with. And we tend to think about that a lot. How can lawyers use this concept of the customer or the client journey in thinking about how they design their service offering? For sure. I think there are a number of different ways, but we'll kind of focus on a couple of really important ones. In general, I find that lawyers and law firms are driven to get results for their customers. They really want to get a result and provide accurate legal advice. And that is, of course, and always will continue to be the most important part of what they do. But on top of that, consumers come with expectations of the way they expect to experience a service and often benchmark their service providers on how their delivery measured up to their expectations. So a major point of emphasis and curiosity for us at Clio is what are consumer expectations of their law firms and how are we doing as a vendor, but also in educating the space and working with folks in meeting those expectations both for our customers, but again, especially for clients. And I think that that's an area where a lot of innovative law firms have started doing work, but there's still this tremendous and exciting opportunity to really invest in uh, getting better and improving. You are coming up on, I think, the third year of the Legal Trends Report. Am I right about that? Third year? That's right. We're publishing the third version, third year uh, in 2018. Can you, and I know you've been expanding what you cover in there. You started out with data from primarily Clio users, and you started integrating survey information from lawyers and then clients. Can you give us a sneak peek at some of the insights that lawyers may be able to glean from the 2018 Legal Trends Report? Pretty please? Well, only because you're awesome, Sam, and because <laughs> all of your listeners are awesome. Yes, I'll give a sneak peek. So we've invested a lot in really diving into this particular element. We, I think, over the years have come to learn a lot about how law firms think, but a big open question is how do consumers think, right? What are their expectations? And you know, when we say, okay, law firm, you need to craft a client experience, I think that's a pretty open-ended exercise. But if we can get a lot of insight from how the people they serve, both currently have served, but also could be serving, uh, expect to be served, then I think we'd really be putting people in position to have a competitive advantage and drive change. So some specific tidbits. You know, we find that 62% of consumers look for a lawyer through referrals, and that's always going to be the biggest source of business. So one of the things we've asked ourselves is what drives referrals and what expectations people set and that could help do that. Step number one, most law firms don't collect feedback from their customers in the first place. That's a tremendous opportunity to, to get deeper into things. And we explore uh, what type of feedback folks are providing to give people a head start. We also look at what expectations of law firms are changing and how uh, perceptions that lawyers have of what their clients want often mismatch what their clients are looking for. And we come up with some pretty big disparities in terms of the way people expect to connect with the firm, whether they expect to do stuff online or uh, in person or by the phone, and, and really dive into that side of things. Oh, that'll be cool to see. So you've dug into like what are the actual things that people bring to the representation. And then I guess what you're kind of getting at here is that the customer experience doesn't end when you close the file because that customer might 
might one way or another turn into your next customer. Exactly. And even further than that, we literally ask, what is the NPS score? Like, yeah. what is your likelihood to recommend a firm you've worked with and are able to benchmark that against other industries? So I'm excited to do a big reveal at ClioCon to see what industries law firms benchmark against. I imagine there will be colorful slides and lots of cheering and excitement or ooing and eyeing. Anyway. Lots of cheering and excitement. <laughs> I hope so. We are coming to the Clio Cloud Conference. And if you are interested in coming to the Clio Cloud Conference, you can go to cliocloudconference.com. And if you use the code lawyerist, you will get a 35% discount on conference passes or bundles. Go there, use it, check it out. We hope to see you there. Thanks so much, George. Thanks, Sam. Look forward to seeing you there too. My name is Natana Sharma. I'm a partner at Crypto Lotus and faculty at Singularity University in blockchain. So what is Crypto Lotus first, Natana? We're an investment fund that invests in blockchain technology opportunities and uh, we're private. So, you know, we don't talk too much about it. Um, <laughs> You're like a secret investor. Exactly. You know, it's very Bay, exactly. San Francisco, Silicon Valley <laughs> kind of a thing. I want to ask you more about like what kinds of things are out there to invest in, but I don't think we're ready yet. So the other part of what you did is you are at Singularity University. What in the world is that? So Singularity Singularity University is an organization uh, that brings together business leaders, government leaders, and nonprofit leaders from around the world um, and helps them to start to understand the way that technology is rapidly transforming industry, government, society. And it was started in 2009 by Peter Diamandis and Ray Kurzweil. And to this day, uh, you know, has a very active international presence and really is there to help folks to get an insight into how technology is rapidly changing our world and how to respond into that rapidly changing environment. Listeners of our podcast will have certainly heard me geek out on what the singularity is and means at some point in the past, but I guess we can probably skip over that for now. <laughs> sure. Um, sure. Happy to, happy to go into it too, whatever, whatever works. I do want to talk about blockchain though, because you were at Codex on a panel and you talked about what blockchain is, why it's interesting, what it can do in one of the most easy to understand ways that I've ever heard. And so I really wanted to get you on the podcast because I know lots of lawyers hear it said a lot and it just sort of stands out there. And maybe you could break it down for us. Like what is blockchain and how do we get our heads around it? So I think the first thing to do level setting when we talk about blockchain technology is that it is a development in how we share and store information, particularly in how we share and store electronic information. And so, you know, when I dive into the explanation, one thing that I want to do to level set is that I want to flag, look, everybody listening to this podcast today can send emails. Mm -hmm. I wager a, a very large bet that practically everyone listening to the podcast has sent an email today. I would also wager that almost no one listening to the podcast really understands uh, the distributed, the DNS system and the TCP IP protocol that govern the manner in which the ones and zeros that make up an email message actually gets from one IP address to another. Right. So that underlying mathematics around computer networking, we don't need to understand it in order to send emails. So with blockchain technology, I'm going to share with you the conceptual understanding of the advance and um, that's not going to go deep into the mathematics. But the way to understand blockchain technology is that for the first time, it gives us the opportunity to give a unique signature or unique fingerprint to a digital object. And if we go back to our email example, if you take the ones and zeros of your email, if I copy them, it's almost impossible to tell which string of ones and zeros is the original and which is the copy. With blockchain technology, you have a new form of database where every block is cryptographically linked to the previous block, and it's very sensitive to any change. And so you can start to tell when and how any changes are made in that database. I think you described it as like triple entry bookkeeping. 
Exactly. So triple entry or more, basically what you have is instead of having a copy of information managed by some kind of central organization like an SAP, instead you have each node in your system having its own copy. And what you do is you have to update the network in the same way at the same time across the copies. You use cryptography to update the network. And the reason I say cryptography is it's a bit of a black box because the technology is evolving very rapidly. Hmm. And so for those people who've heard that Bitcoin is slow or that Bitcoin uses a lot of energy, Bitcoin uses is a particular technology to update the network in the same way at the same time across the nodes, there are other newer ways to update the network. And so maybe you can separate that out for us too, because Bitcoin is a type of currency that is stored on the blockchain. And if I'm getting you correctly, the reason that can work is because we can now tell that your 0.751 Bitcoin and my 0.751 Bitcoin are different. And it also allows you to hand off a digital thing, whereas before all we could do is make copies and now we both have it. Exactly. So if before I made a copy of your Bitcoin and then you tried to pay for a sandwich and a soda from two different vendors with that same Bitcoin, there'd be no way to tell the difference, right? Mm -hmm. You've got to have some way of having unique digital objects if you're going to have digital money. And the way that that happens in our traditional systems is we rely on Visa, we rely on merchants, we rely on merchant banks to help to distinguish our digital dollars so we can't spend them in the same place, the same digital dollar in the same place. Um, but it's very expensive to rely on that central authority. With Bitcoin, we can now rely on the network to prevent us from spending the same money in two different places. With Bitcoin, I would flag that we don't need to consider it a currency. It's a means of attempting to track and store value on a blockchain. So there are many blockchains, um, so I'm hesitant to call it the blockchain. And the other piece is that with Bitcoin, we can call it a currency if we want, but I think that creates more problems than it solves. And I guess the real takeaway here is that Bitcoin was maybe the first or an early implementation of blockchain, but it's just one way to use it. Yes. Why does this matter? Why is it interesting? So it's interesting because for the first time, we have a way of solving that problem of double spending or copying digital objects and not being able to tell the difference. Um, and what that means is there are whole swaths of the economy that to this date have not yet been taken online that can now be taken online because we have a tremendous new level of security. Hmm. So for example, if you look at how Maersk and IBM are currently using blockchain technology and their new joint venture for international shipping, you can start to take various aspects of international shipping that until now have been on paper because it's very, very tricky to figure out how to move them from paper to digital. Because once you put something onto a digital system and without blockchain technology, it's very easy to hack that system and change the edit history. And right. so if you want to go ahead and do an audit, once you've deleted an edit history, that's almost impossible. And in international shipping, if white powder instead of avocados end up at a port, we need to know why and how we need to be able to do an investigation. And so with blockchain technology, this new level of security for tracking and storing information online means that we can bring to the digital world various aspects of the economy that to date have stayed on paper. And so folks like the people at Gartner Research, they predict that this can add trillions of dollars to the economy, the global economy in the next decade. 
And that's blockchain technology being used in business as opposed to digital assets, which we're setting aside for the purpose of this conversation. It's tracking, basically. It's transactional information, it sounds like. Exactly. You know, one of the true marvels of technology is the ability to track and store information using writing. And that is a tremendous advance. Um, But now we have an even more secure, reliable way to track information online. Mm -hmm. So maybe you could real quick differentiate this because I can hear people going, well, it sounds like that's just metadata and I have that, you know, my computer tracks all kinds of information about files coming in and out. If I make a copy of a Word document, you know, my computer knows that those are different copies, even though the text of it is the same. It has different timestamps and it has a record. So break that down. Without blockchain-based technology, if a hacker enters your computer, they can start to delete and change all of that metadata. Right. And what blockchain technology does is in order to delete and change metadata that's stored in a blockchain-based system, you need to change not just one copy, but you have to change over 50% of the copies in the whole network. And why is that hard? Each copy is running protective cryptography and protective software. And it could be really hard to break into one copy, but it's going to be easier to break into one copy than it's going to be to break into 50 copies or into 100 copies. And so if we have... You know, in in a big public blockchain like the Ethereum blockchain or the Bitcoin blockchain that are currently being used to frustrate censorship in China, for example, you'd have to change millions of copies and you'd have to do it at the same time or the network would record your attempt to change the network. I I feel like I remember you were describing it as track changes, but for any other kind of digital transaction. And so I guess my thought is if I have track changes running on a Word document and then I make a copy of it, you know, I can change an apostrophe And now it's plural instead of possessive, but I have to go back to the other copy and manually change it there. And if I've got 50 copies, I've got to manually change it on all of them. And many of them are locked in digital safes and things like that. And so it gets really complicated and hard. Exactly. And not only do you have to change it, but you have to change it all at the same time. Because if you change it on one copy, that change will register on the network. Mm-hmm. But, you know, this particular public key is associated with that change at that time. And not only that, but you can't make just one change. So if we go back to our track changes example on a Word doc, you'd have to make changes throughout every single change that's ever been made in the history of a blockchain. So I kind of like Excel spreadsheets. You have to go back and change every single cell on the spreadsheet because all of the cells are linked cryptographically. And so if you make any change later on, you can't make that change without people knowing that you've made it and when you've made it unless you make the change on every single block in the whole history of the blockchain. So it's a not quite infinite cascade of metadata, it sounds like. Exactly. So, you know, I think the metadata on our computer is powerful. The challenge is what happens if you have an actor who really wants to change that metadata? Mm -hmm. When you're dealing with high stakes business and, you know, something like international shipping, the wrong actors have strong incentive to change the metadata. Yeah. We need to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors and we come back. I want to talk through some more examples of how blockchain is being used in addition to shipping. So we'll be right back. Support for today's episode comes from Ruby Receptionists, dedicated to helping you grow your practice one happy caller at a time. From their offices in Portland, Oregon, Ruby's live virtual receptionists work in tandem with their innovative technology to answer your calls live with your custom greeting, transfer calls through to you when and where you want, collect new client intake and messages, make follow-up calls, and more. Delighting your callers in English and Spanish just like an in-house receptionist at a fraction of the cost. They integrate with Clio, Rocket Matter, and Lexicata, as well as the contacts and calendar on your cell phone to easily integrate into your workflow. Ruby can host your local phone number or provide you with one, giving you the opportunity to make dual use of your phone. Call clients using your office or personal number as you please via the Ruby mobile app. 
For over 15 years, thousands of attorneys have been turning rings into relationships with Ruby receptionists. To learn more, call 844-715-7829 or visit callruby.com slash lawyerist2018. If you're not 100% happy with your law practice right now, chances are you want more. More income from your practice, more fulfillment from your work, and more freedom to enjoy your life. There's a new law business model that is allowing passionate attorneys to reclaim their lives and love practicing law again. Alexis Neely has been training lawyers for over a decade on the new law business model she created to build her own million-dollar law practice. And now, the lawyers she has trained in that new law business model have their own high six- and seven-figure law practices, all without sacrificing time with their families and only working with clients they love to serve. It is possible to experience the exhilaration of a thriving law practice, do the most meaningful legal work, have a real impact in your clients' lives, and have complete control over your schedule. Discover this new law business model now by watching the free video workshop series at newlawbusinessmodel.com slash lawyerist. Did you know that attorneys who accept online payments get paid 39% faster on average than those who use traditional payment methods? With LawPay, the only payment solution offered through the ABA Advantage program, you can easily accept client payments online, via email, or in person. No equipment needed. Visit lawpay.com slash lawyerist to sign up and get your first three months free. Trust the only payment solution developed for attorneys and recommended by 48 state bars. Law pay. Okay, Natana, so you brought up the shipping example where I guess blockchain is sort of being used to bring shipping manifests and all that kind of stuff online. What are some of the other examples you would give to showcase it? I mean, it's pretty incredible. So I think for folks who are not aware, IBM and Maersk have actually launched a joint venture called TradeLens. And TradeLens is registering almost a million events in international shipping a day onto its system. And that's just growing. They have 94 partners in international shipping. So it's a, it's a very powerful, very cool new technology. But some other examples. So one example is a project called Everledger. That's a company that's aiming to track supply chains. One example is diamonds. So insurers every year lose $2 billion from insurance fraud around gems, diamonds, where certain diamonds are conflict diamonds or they're not actually the diamonds that people say they are. And then insurers lose billions of dollars. And so uh, Everledger is starting to use blockchain technology to track diamonds, where they've come from at each step along the supply chain. The government of Australia is working on its own blockchain technology to track made in Australia goods because there's rampant fraud when it comes to made in Australia goods, wine, meat, dairy products throughout Asia, uh, because unfortunately we have a situation where there are many businesses in Asia that often are selling fraudulent goods that sometimes, you know, adulterated milk, et cetera. And so consumers in Asia will pay a premium for made in Australia oh. products. And the fraudsters have kind of come back and have created fraudulent made in Australia products. Does that take the shape of like a QR code or a barcode on the item that so that you can then track that item? Yes. What's powerful about blockchain technology is, you know, you've got the QR code on the item, but how do you stop somebody from copying that QR code or cheating the system yep. and making it seem like the QR code on a fake item matches what's needed from the QR code from the real item? And so the blockchain technology, when embedded in these systems, adds a very important extra level of security. Maybe you could say a little bit more about that. I mean, I know Bitcoin uses something like QR codes as well. Like, how, how do you avoid copying and, and counterfeiting those things? It goes right back to what we were saying before. If you want to copy or counterfeit, you have to make the change on over 50 50% of the nodes, 
and you have to do it on every single block in the whole history of the blockchain. And so, you know, you're able to have for each object that goes through your system, a unique QR code or a unique address. And to try to make it seem like an address that isn't actually in the system is in the system is a much more difficult feat hmm. for a hacker. Than it was before. So it makes it much, much, much more expensive to cheat the system. I guess what I was thinking about though is I, I know I've seen, you know, somebody flashes a printed out Bitcoin code and uh, somebody's able to use to spend that Bitcoin just based on seeing it. And it seems like that is a problem, right? Or is, has that been controlled for on some of these newer systems? Or maybe I just don't understand. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think with Bitcoin, what you'd have to do is you wouldn't hack the system itself, but you'd hack my display. So if you could get into my phone and hack my display, you could put your QR code for your Bitcoin address instead of mine. Mm -hmm. um, that's different from hacking the network. Right. Now, the challenge is for you to do that, you have to have a valid address. It's not simple or easy to make that hack, but you can try. If you're in the consumer situation, you'd have to have a way of hacking an app on somebody's phone that connects up to you know, Walmart or some other large companies blockchain based system where only the QR codes that fit within the system and that are genuine within the system actually trigger your app to go green. Um, and somebody would have to hack their QR codes doing the same thing in your app. Or like in the shipping container example, if I walked up to the shipping container and took a photo of the QR code on the shipping container, I could probably go print it out and smack it on another one though. Well, but the problem is that the QR code, for the QR code to stay valid, it has to stay valid as it's tracked through the system. Mm-hmm. And so if you try to take it and you copy it and put it on another container, the question is, how will it be tracked as it moves? Because, you know, it's not just about the QR code. It's the other pieces that are entering information into the system. I see. At worst, it will just be tracking two copies of the thing. And then eventually I can figure out where somebody uh, got into the system. It wouldn't be tracking the two copies because the QR code itself is not the only thing doing the tracking. Hmm. So you're going to have some kind of Internet of Things device or you're going to have various methods of taking events and entering them into the system. And if I have one QR code and all those events are associated with that QR code with a particular geolocation, but you happen to have copied the QR code and slapped it on somewhere else, that other copy is not going to be associated with any of those new events. So it's like multi-factor authentication, basically. Yes. Gotcha. Okay. But then it's how you protect that multi-factor authentication. So you started by talking about this as blockchain is kind of the technology that underlies email. And we all understand email well enough to use it, but very few people understand email well enough to like trace the bits from my computer to yours. Is that, I mean, when we think about the potential for blockchain, is that most of the neat stuff happening is that sort of infrastructural level? I mean, what do we need to know about using it, I guess, is what I'm getting to. So I think starting, you know, the technology is still very early. And so I think there's some levels in which there's certain aspects of the technology we'll never need to know. So just like you can use emails without ever needing to know anything about TCP IP protocol, but it depends also on what you're aiming to do and achieve. So if you're the CEO of a company with thin margins that's international that could really benefit from decreasing the cost of fraud enough that it's worth investing massively into a system, well, then you've got to learn a little bit more about blockchain technology and decide how you're going to use it, what pilots you're going to run. So some of it is, what are your issues? What are your challenges? And how can this technology potentially help you? That's going to affect what you need to know. What are some of the myths about blockchain or the, or the ways in which it is sometimes used? I mean, I know AI people are just like, they, every time it gets mentioned, it's like, it's annoying. Uh, so what are some of the ways that blockchain gets thrown out there that you want to debunk or that we should just ignore? Um, so sometimes people talk a lot about how it's used by criminals, and that's quite a myth that may have been true to start, but 
Bitcoin in particular is not anonymous. And the information of exactly how many Bitcoins are in each address and the, the identity of the address are available. And so it's relatively simple for law enforcement and others to trace who owns which address. You know, and, and the other thing is the whole digital asset space is tiny despite the uh, hype and despite the way that it has grown over the last dec- over the last nine years since Bitcoin was first developed. There's a lot of myths around digital assets, calling them currencies, and then people get upset because they don't seem like currencies. Right. And what I say is, why do we have to call them a currency anyway? Let's try to take the- Let's try to just understand what they are and, and how they work. that's how you're going to be taxed on them anyway. <laughs> well, you're not, you know, you're not going to be taxed as a currency. Exactly. Yeah. You're going to be taxed on them as property. And I think that, you know, that, that approach of just stepping back, figuring out when and how, what, what these things might be, gives you a bigger window into potentially using them. That said, I think blockchain technology can be used in many ways and doesn't need to be used to create digital assets, although it can be. And there's, I, I personally do find um, value in digital assets, but I think stepping back from the hype and diving into what these things actually are and trying to stay away from buzzwords is going to really help folks to understand better. It feels like one of the uses of this, one of the obvious uses would be around digital piracy. Is Has that already happened or am I off and that's not actually something that, you know, the RIAA is paying attention to? It's potentially something that could help with digital piracy because you could track songs better. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Spotify has purchased a um, blockchain-based company for tracking uh, digital rights and songs. One of the things about blockchain technology is that it can be applied in so many different industries. Um, and so I'm not a, I don't have offhand all the information on how the technology is being used in that particular way right now, but it's definitely an active area of investigation and research. So what does get you excited about the future of blockchain? Uh, I think it's pretty incredible to have the opportunity to coordinate large numbers of humans much more cheaply and reliably. So for example, I think, you know, one example that's pertinent to lawyers is tracking shareholders. If you're a public company, it's very expensive and time consuming to track all of your shareholders. Um, Companies make the mistakes that's led to lawsuits in the past. And using this technology, you could much better track who your shareholders actually are, who owns what, because, you know, right now it can take several days for stock purchases to actually converge and uh, for the ownership rights to really change. And so companies are left in limbo and left with a lot of liability. And so I think that's an example of an area of industry and transactions that could be made more efficient. And I think that global industry is filled with areas that can be made more efficient using this technology to better track and store and manage transactions between humans. What is it in the art world? What is it when you're trying to track where things come from? Provenance. Provenance. It sounds like in a way blockchain is a massive provenance machine. Yes. I think that's one aspect of it that's very powerful. Um, And then the other thing I'm excited about is I still think we're, we're, we're in the very beginning stages. So, you know, I think when the internet was first developed, it would have been very hard to predict Airbnb or even Uber, you know, those, those companies seem iconic now and it, they seem, it gets hard to imagine the world without them. But on the other hand, I think there was a time when people thought it would be crazy to think that you would, you know, rent rooms in your house to people you don't know. And the internet has made possible so many applications that would have been very hard to predict when it was first being created. So I'm really excited to see what this new networking technology that adds this new level of security and the ability to to coordinate information even faster and cheaper and more reliably than the internet previously, what this new technology makes possible. It's very hard to predict. Is it possible that it basically just becomes ubiquitous, that nearly everything is 
tracked on some blockchain or others so that just about everything we do, you know, uh, can be kept track of. I, that that starts getting a little dystopian and scary to me, but but maybe I shouldn't worry about it. Uh, I think that um, keeping track of everything, that is something to be concerned about, but it's just not, it's not just about blockchain technology. Um, and there are ways- <laughs> no, that's a good point. <laughs> could potentially um, help to protect certain aspects of data, private data. I think that's really an issue for machine learning and artificial intelligence where we, you know, we, we really see this technology having taken off and, and evolving in China where, you know, there's just incredible tracking of everyone. They have this new system for tracking a person's social responsibility score, um, which then affects where they can travel, where their kids can go to school. Um, so I definitely think that's something to be concerned about. But I think, you know, that's a concern that we have to consider with a suite of new technologies, not blockchain technology in particular. What's something I neglected to ask you about that you think everybody ought to know about blockchain or, or about the work that you're doing? I think people will sometimes ask me, you know, what does the future hold or how can they get involved? And I think that a really key piece is to learn more. Like already folks who are listening to the podcast are, are ahead of the game, just being open, having an open mind and being willing to learn a little more. And I think one interesting piece for lawyers is you know, there's this notion of a smart contract that gets thrown around. And I think it's important to flag that a smart contract just is a piece of executable code that takes place without additional human intervention. So you've got a smart contract if you have automatic bill payment or you have automatic renewal for your online service. But pairing smart contracts with a more secure database means that you can start to do some pretty interesting things around resolving transactions, et cetera. Uh, but we are still going to need dispute resolution. We're still going to need various contracts for all the different reasons we need contracts today. They might start looking a little different as we get better and better at coordinating with these new tools. When you say it can get more interesting, is it because you can authenticate different inputs to those? And I, I want to put contracts in quote here because you're really just talking about software and algorithms. But so, for example, I can authenticate a price or a shareholder trade or something like that. And so now I can depend on that when I write a contract or a piece of code that automatically makes things happen. Exactly. So, you know, one one kind of interesting example is a project that AOS, the trucking company, is doing with IBM where you have GPS devices in the trucks transmitting the truck location. And in the contracts you have built in, if the truck is at X place at Y time, a reward will automatically go to the trucking company. You can use blockchain technology to keep the funds in, in escrow on the network and then have them automatically unlocked when the GPS on the truck transmits, hey, the truck is at the right location. Which would be a terrible idea if you can't authenticate that fact because somebody could just, you know, get their way in there. Exactly. But if you can't authenticate the fact, well, then you save a whole lot of time and money and paperwork. That makes a lot of sense. That's where we're going. We've touched on smart contracts. We've walked through what blockchain really is and, and I think hopefully given some good analogies. I feel like I have a much better understanding. I hope our listeners do too. Natana, thanks so much for walking us through blockchain. You're welcome. Great to connect and looking forward to being in touch. Make sure to catch next week's episode of the Lawyerist podcast by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast app. And please leave a rating to help other people find our show. You can find the notes for today's episode on lawyerist.com slash podcast. The Lawyerist podcast is produced with help from Lindsay Calhoun and edited by Paul Fisher. The views expressed by the participants are their own and are not endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you.